Hi everyone, this is Shreyas. Welcome to our first episode of our new Network 5 Emergency Medicine case series. I'm here with Pramoth and we're recording this pilot episode today of a new project which is designed to demonstrate a series of cases that have diagnostic or clinical dilemmas and demonstrate approaches to cases that exist at the margins of the medical evidence. We're going to talk about how we apply clinical reasoning in these cases and talk about the evidence base behind them. And I think most importantly, we're going to demonstrate the importance of reflective practice and how to take lessons from these unusual cases and apply them to the future in a structured way. So Prem, this was your initial idea and I think partly inspired by this very unusual case that you had. Do you want to tell us some details about the case to start with? Hi everyone, my name's Pramod. For those who don't remember me, it's been a little while since I've been on our network podcast, um, but I'm an emergency consultant. I work at uh, Westmead and Nepean Hospitals. Just a bit more on what Treyas was saying, I think one of the scariest things in emergency medicine is when you accidentally don't kill someone. And so part of this case series is reflecting on how you come to that point and I think is more a demonstration of what reflective practice looks like for me and the process that I go through when I come across a case like this. So why don't we crack on with the story and we can go through uh, sort of what exactly it is that made this case particularly interesting. So I was working in a busy tertiary emergency department um, and came across a lovely 61-year-old male who presented with essentially two distinct episodes of shortness of breath, chest pain, and associated presyncope. The first episode was over a week prior to his presentation to the ED, and that was the episode that was associated with the presyncope and dizziness sensation. Both episodes of this shortness of breath and chest pain combination occurred in a non-exertional context and lasted in total less than five minutes. The episode that caused the hospital presentation was basically due to some heavy encouragement from the patient's wife who saw that he looked a bit pale at the time of this shortness of breath and chest pain. On arrival to the emergency department via ambulance, the patient was feeling asymptomatic. An initial ECG that was performed on arrival was normal sinus rhythm with no acute changes to suggest an underlying arrhythmia or rhythm conduction abnormality. And observations at triage were unremarkable. His other relevant background was that he was an untreated uh, hypertension. Um, he's normally on perindopril, but self-ceased it a couple of months ago. Blood pressure was normal in the ED. Um, he otherwise had no significant background medical conditions and was a non-smoker. He'd had no recent travel um, and no recent major surgeries. He did, however, have a recent upper respiratory tract infection maybe about a month ago, but fully recovered with the course of oral antibiotics from his local doctor. The clinical examination, which was initially performed on the ambulance stretcher due to some offload delays, were, was completely unremarkable with a, a normal chest and heart examination and no clinical DVT observed. So Prem, set the scene for us because this was not a normal time period for the emergency department, was it? No, so this was during one of our COVID waves. I'm pretty sure it was Omicron. In addition to that, we had some shortages around, and we'll get into this a bit later as the case goes on, but some shortages around the availability of contrast. Obviously, I'm sure we all have recollections of our personal experiences of how COVID affected the emergency departments where we worked at. But I think a universal comment would be that it was very access blocked, very busy, and you know exceptionally resource deprived. And so those are the kind of framing contexts around which this case occurred. Absolutely. And I think particularly for an Australian context, the Omicron wave was the first time that COVID 
reached a population-wide level. Certainly in the Delta wave, we experienced significant morbidity and mortality. However, it was certainly confined to specific geographical regions where Omicron was the first time where COVID became widely prevalent in the community. So moving on, Prem, you saw this case quite early and immediately you wanted this patient to be monitored with telemetry. Yeah. And that was essentially just based on brief presyncope. Yeah. What was it about this presyncope that made you worried as opposed to another presyncope? It's an interesting question. I think much of these rapid clinical decisions that we do make occur to some significant degree on the basis of Gestalt. But when you try to refine it, as you should do when you're reflecting on a case. I think part of it had to do with the associated chest pain in a patient who epidemiologically probably would be considered a low to intermediate risk given his age and his untreated hypertension. Certainly both of those, in addition to the the nature of the symptoms, made me concerned about a potential cardiac cause for a syncope. So when 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 you think about syncope, you sort of try and break it up into whether you think there's a cardiogenic cause, whether you think there's a life-threatening non-cardiogenic cause, or whether there's a, a more benign cause functional, vasovagal, orthostatic, etc. And on the basis of that initial impression, I think this position was made. And so because my initial impression was such that the etiology might be something that would benefit from continuous cardiac monitoring, I streamed the patient to one of the few acute beds that we had after speaking to my nurse unit manager. I guess that allows us to touch a little on this syncope risk threshold tools. What value do they have to you the way I look at the syncope risk stratification scores, I think the gross review of how we practice as ED clinicians is that there is a very clear population group that is extremely high risk of having cardiac syncope. And those patients would be you know, those that are elderly. Um, I think if you look at the European Society of Cardiology guidelines around what an age cutoff would be, they quote 35. And you have to remember that these guidelines are built in such a way that they have a very high sensitivity and maybe not such a great specificity. And so maybe that age cutoff is a bit conservative. Um, certainly this patient being the age that he was fit that cutoff. Then you've got the comment around those patients with structural heart disease, you know, uh, either cardiomyopathic illnesses or ischemic heart disease. And then lastly, those patients who also present with abnormal ECG. So that's the kind of information triad that you'd probably have at the point of care triage. Now, thinking about what makes an abnormal ECG, certainly those rhythm abnormalities and tachyarrhythmias would be probably the two most obvious ones. Things like prolonged QT intervals, right bundle branch blocks, obvious signs of those eponymous syncope syndromes, Brigada, Wolf-Parkinson-White, I think we're all very familiar with those. But what tends to happen is that we probably over-admit syncopes. That tends to be the overall consensus from a review of the literature. And we probably are a bit conservative. And I think my decision in this particular context probably demonstrates that point. I think if you tried to objectively look at risk stratification scores about whether this patient truly had a cardiac syncope based off the information we have at this point, you'd probably have to say that maybe telemetry was unnecessary uh, from a resource use point of view. And certainly looking at how these risk scores are broken down, there is nothing to suggest in this particular patient's presentation that there are salient high-risk features. So then the question becomes, why did I do what I did? And again, I think a lot of it had to do with what my clinical impression was initially, and I was still undecided between whether the etiology was a primary syncopal event or a primary acute coronary event causing a secondary syncopal event. And I mean, certainly the combination of 
chest pain, having some breathlessness with the sync bee is enough to raise a little bit of a red flag in the mind, as opposed to the 19 year old who got startled and maybe fainted. Moving on, can you tell us how the case progressed? Yeah, so the patient was moved to an acute care bed. As I said, the first ECG was normal, a repeat ECG was performed. Routine blood tests were performed as well, and the first troponin came back as 80. And for a reference range, our normal values in the hospitals that I practice in is less than 15. So basically he had a non-STEMI then? Well, I think there's an elevated troponin and I think it's worthwhile articulating it in that fashion and and we'll go through maybe why I talk about it in that way specifically. The chest x-ray was normal. Remainder of the patient's bloods were all completely normal as well. Mm. A repeat troponin was performed Mm -hmm. um, and that was also 80. No dynamic change in that. And there was no dynamic changes in the ECGs, either on serial ECGs. The patient remained asymptomatic Throughout this period of time, the two troponins were three hours apart, as per our um, sort of acute coronary syndrome workup protocol. And so what I was left with was essentially a 61-year-old gentleman with a high troponin with an episode of chest pain prior to presentation to the ED who was now currently asymptomatic with no dynamic ECG changes. I had obviously aspirin loaded him at this stage and was preparing for a conversation with cardiology around admission and, and ongoing monitoring. What changed your mind? What was it about this that made you think that this was not a cut and dry, admit them under cardiology, telemetry bed, maybe add a second antiplatelet? I'd probably have to be honest and say that I initially did think it was a non-STEMI when I got that first troponin back. And I think most people would. I think if you think, statistically speaking, in a patient with this presenting complaint with a raised troponin, the most likely etiology is going to be an occlusive coronary lesion. Common things are common. Exactly, exactly. I have to admit, doing the second troponin and not witnessing a, a delta change... And then thinking more on the case and uh, particularly focusing on the reason the patient presented this time, which was feeling dizzy and a bit pale, along with the chest pain and shortness of breath, and then reflecting on the fact that there was a similar episode a week prior of associated presyncope, made me think that there might be another etiology underlying this. And, And I think... Look, I'm, I'm very much a, when there is significant diagnostic uncertainty, I'm very much a first principles kind of person. And I would have imagined that if someone had an occlusive coronary lesion, I would expect there to be a rising troponin or a falling troponin even if you've, if the patient is presented in a delayed fashion. Just any sort of a delta change? Yeah, any sort of a delta change, either upwards or downwards. And I know with the current evolution of how our troponin assays uh, have progressed that we now have what is essentially a high sensitivity troponin assay. And so what we look at with high sensitivity tests is that, you know, you, when they're negative, they're really good. When they're positive, their specificity drops as the sensitivity rises. And so you might have a positive, but it might not be a true positive based off what your clinical question was. So how I think about these things is I hypothesis test. So my hypothesis initially was this patient had acute coronary syndrome. I tested that hypothesis by doing a second troponin. I didn't witness the delta change that I would expect just thinking about it physiologically and pathologically. And therefore my hypothesis was incorrect, or at least some element of my hypothesis needed to be questioned. And I think that's kind of how I avoided false anchoring on a non-STEMI as a primary diagnosis and thought maybe the etiology lied elsewhere. So you you weren't quite satisfied with the diagnosis of a non-STEMI. The case was not quite behaving as you would expect it to. And so because things weren't behaving as you expected, you re-evaluated. And I think that reflects that idea of sort of type 1, type 2 thinking. I think we all love it when things follow a pattern. It's very satisfying and it makes us feel good. But I think when something doesn't fit a pattern, it's very important to question why it doesn't fit a pattern before we try and shove triangles into squares. Yeah. And so I think 
That was essentially what ended up happening here. I had an expected pattern for what I was anticipating with the investigations that I had ordered, and I wasn't seeing that pattern bear. The next diagnosis that you thought about was a PE, and so you decided to order a D-dimo. PE question came about primarily because of this combination of symptoms, the shortness of breath with the chest pain and the dizziness. I often worry that retaking histories from patients, but particularly uh, when you reevaluate your clinical impression because of the, how the case has progressed. Patients sometimes get trained and your repeated history taking can sometimes be molded. And so that can also be problematic. But I think for me, when I thought about what my other diagnoses were, obviously everyone considers a PE. And we all, I think, ascribe a pretest probability to PE quite early on in our patients in whom we're thinking about it. So for example, a 20-year-old patient who presents with pleuritic sounding chest pain, you know, maybe after going for a run or after having a panic attack, we would all likely, all senior clinicians would likely think of a PE, and the vast majority of us would likely ascribe a low pretest probability, quickly look at the observations, identify a PERC score, and rule it out. Does every patient enter that pathway for you? So the 20-year-old, they've been for a run, they're a bit tachycardic because they've been for a run. Perk score of one, are you doing a D-dimer? Does everyone need to have no, I P think, systematically ruled out? No, they don't. I, I think the, the first question you have to ask yourself is, am I genuinely concerned about a PE? And I think the real question behind that question is, is the patient's symptoms pathological? Or are they reflective of another secondary process going on? So for the example you gave, the tachycardia is not pathological in that context. It's likely exertion related. And so what might be beneficial in that context would be some prospective monitoring. And if my hypothesis was that the patient had just gone for a run, then the pattern that I would expect would be the heart rate would settle with no intervention or maybe a bit of fluid. And that's not what should happen if the patient had a PE or it's unlikely to be what should happen. And so, and the similar thing for those patients presenting with anxiety attacks, for example. Now, I think in this case, it's very different because with the elevated troponin, you'd have to say that the patient's symptoms are pathological. And so that then opens the door to asking a legitimate question of, is this patient got a PE or does this patient have a PE rather? And I think initially with the information that I had without the troponin, without the delta troponins to question my initial hypothesis, I think my answer was that the predisprobability probability was low enough that I didn't need to enter a formal risk stratification pretest probability process. But now that my hypothesis had been questioned, I had to go back and revisit that initial assumption. And so at that point, I made the call that this patient needed accurate pretest probability risk stratification, something that I needed to articulate in my notes, for example, because I needed to actively exclude an alternative diagnosis. And that, that I think, is how I entered the idea of Wells scoring the patient, trying to ascribe some degree of pretest probability, which then led me down the path of a D-dimer. Essentially, what you're saying is that ultimately you need to have a judgment of whether P is plausible in the patient. And certainly that correlates with my reading and experience of P. There's nothing, once the question has been raised in your mind, there's nothing specific in a immediate clinical sense of history and exam that can either rule it in or out, other than the question of establishing a pretest probability. Is it a plausible diagnosis? And then what is the risk? Are you always using Wells scores for pretest probability? Otherwise, what sort of pathway do you generally follow? Look, I think it comes back to that first question of is it pathological? And I think that eliminates a vast bulk of patients in whom maybe on retrospective analysis, Wells scores are unnecessary to do 20-year-olds with benign symptoms. And I think it's important to understand how these scores are developed essentially just through mass data collection and that we then ascribe power to particular features of the score, giving them one, 1.5, two points, however we like to look at it. And that's true of all scoring systems. And so 
Things like, for example, troponins, which was the pivoting point in this particular case, it's not included in something like the Wells score. If I had to articulate why I went down the PE pathway, it would have to be a combination of clinical gestalt and Wells scoring. And so the clinical gestalt aspect of it told me that a PE is a diagnosis that needed to be considered. And then the Wells <coughs> scoring said that, well, look, it's likely a low probability still but he ages himself out of using a perk score. And so following that pathway, the D-dimer was the next logical step. You are using your Wells score to rationalize what in your mind was potentially a slightly uncertain pretest probability. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And look, I, I probably misspoke. I don't think I necessarily put him in a low risk category. I think with the elevated troponin and the presence of presyncope, I think I probably would have bumped him up to an intermediate category. And what the Wells score does is it allows me to use those words, low, intermediate, and high. And so I think that gives me some guidance around the D-dimer and how do I interpret it. I think from the literature, the important thing is not which decision tool you use, whether it's Wells, whether it's modified Geneva. And there is even good evidence that actually clinical gestalt in a senior clinician is equivalently sensitive to the Wells score, albeit potentially less specific. I guess the important thing is consistency, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think using the one score, not cherry picking elements from multiple scores, because then you really are skating on the edges of evidence, but also understanding and trying to articulate to people why you're doing what you're doing. And it helps you understand why it is you're being so aggressive or so, you know, defensive in how you're practicing when it comes to ordering these investigations. So we got the D-dimer and the D-dimer came back as 0.58 with a normal D-dimer of less than 0.5. And this patient was 61. So age adjusted negative. Yeah. So that was my initial instinct. I didn't want to go further down the PE pathway. Um, And... I actually, I came on to shift for this patient, for this particular day. I said, Prem, why are you still thinking about this? Age of negative. Just leave, yeah. <laughs> admit the patient under cardiology and let's just all move on. <laughs> that conversation. <laughs> and then thinking something doesn't feel quite right. And often that's not enough. You know, I think one of the things you get bestowed upon you as you become more senior as an ED clinician, and certainly my role as a staff specialist, is your version of something doesn't feel quite right is has clinical value versus as an intern or as a resident or a junior medical officer. But it's always important to ask and take those feelings seriously because that's how you develop your gestalt. So for me, I think the challenge here was that low versus intermediate risk predest probability. I think I was very much on the fence about where I sat with that. And the more I thought about it, the less convinced I was that the patient had a non-STEMI. And so for me, I sort of weighed up the likely diagnosis, which statistically, again, probably still remained a non-STEMI. And I weighed up the less likely or the second most likely diagnosis, which was a PE. And through the course of this patient's clinical journey in the couple of hours that they'd been in the ED, the likelihood of a non-STEMI had dropped and the likelihood of a PE had risen slightly to the point now where I think... If I was to say what the relative probability was between the two of them, they would be very close to being equal. That's kind of where we sat at the moment. And so in that particular context, I think because of the fact that I had changed my predest probability from low to intermediate risk, I then did not use the age-adjusted D-dimer, primarily because the age-adjusted D-dimer is mainly validated in those patients who have a low pretest probability. We've mentioned a little bit about the initial pretest probability assessment tools. Now, we've also got so many other pathways and tricks up our sleeve. You mentioned PERC. We haven't talked about years yet, which functions both as something that you can use for assessing pretest probability, but also as something that you can use to then stream patients into a diagnostic pathway. 
we have talked about age-adjusted D-dimer. From my understanding, these can only fit together in certain ways. Essentially, we know that we can sequentially fit them together in a non-cherry-picking way because that's been studied in a 2021 paper. Yeah, that's right. So essentially, I think how they talk about it is the initial pretest probability. I think that initial ascription to pretest probability still remains very vague in the literature about what makes up that initial assessment of asking the question, does a patient have a PE? Certainly then at that point, you can use your year's score to further restratify. And then in the context of a low pretest probability, you can use a D-dimer cutoff of less than one. And then in a high intermediate pretest probability, a D-dimer cutoff of less than 0.5. Yeah. So actually in this particular study, they did use the age-adjusted D-dimer for the year's patients that had a score greater than one. That is just in this particular study. It's not true everywhere. And the interesting component of it is that this score which essentially demonstrated non-inferiority between a sequential use of years and age-adjusted D-dimer versus purely using age-adjusted D-dimer showed non-inferiority, but actually the age-adjusted D-dimer control group had a higher rate of missed VTE. I think there is a signal there, and this is where we are skating towards the edge of interpreting evidence, that I think the more filters we use, the more we increase our sensitivity. And so by applying initial pretest probability and then a years, and then by using the D-dimer, I think we've sufficiently lowered our risk. But in this case, I think we were potentially just applying our age-adjusted D-dimer. I think at this point, it really gets to the individual. It's just about how much risk you're willing to accept, isn't it? I think so. I think part of that is the acceptability of risk. And one more point that I think was important to mention and certainly crossed my mind was this idea of the prodromal respiratory tract infection. We had gotten to the point, I think, in the pandemic at this stage where we're basically out of rat tests and most people were not really actively testing themselves for COVID. This patient hadn't done any COVID testing at all and just been started on oral antibiotics. And I was aware of the literature surrounding this case suggesting that those patients who had a COVID-19 infection, I think the evidence is particularly strong in those patients with more severe disease variants, were at a higher risk of pulmonary embolism in the 30 to 60 day period immediately post-infection. Having that in the back of my mind also made me concerned. And that was part of the reason I think why I took that history so assiduously in the first place, because I was worried that there might be something else going on. And I think that was another reason behind increasing my initial pretest probability as well that I perhaps didn't articulate earlier. And certainly may, it may have been the thing that bumped me from low to intermediate risk. There is some evidence that this increased risk of VTE does exist on a population level as well. Yeah, there? so there's a big study done out of Sweden uh, where they prospectively followed up almost over a million patients and found that the incidence of VTE was significantly increased in those patients who tested positive to COVID compared to a control group of just a baseline incidence of VTE in, uh, in an unprovoked fashion. I think we're still learning a lot about the nature of blood clots and COVID-19 infections, and I'm sure that data will be passed out in a better manner as the years go by. But I think at the moment, we're still very much at the tail end of what was essentially a very long and sustained pandemic, and we're still learning a lot about this. But for me, that diagnostic uncertainty or that clinical uncertainty with the evidence, along with my own diagnostic uncertainty, was enough to bump up my pretest probability from a low to an intermediate. And I think then that precluded me from using an age-adjusted D-dimer because the patient was no longer a low pretest probability. And so then this was a true positive or potentially a true positive D-dimer. 
What did you do next? So I think the next thing is probably more reflective of some system issues that we were experiencing at the time, but there was essentially a national co- contrast shortage, meaning that intravenous contrast use for diagnostic purposes was almost exclusively for hemodynamically unstable patients and those patients in whom an alternative imaging modality could be found. Advice from our radiology services was to pursue that imaging modality. So in this context, I had a non-smoking 61-year-old patient in whom I was questioning the presence of a PE. And so I was advised by my radiology services on a Saturday afternoon to get a VQ scan, which meant a 24-hour wait in the ED. And I think certainly that raised some interesting questions around whether admitting under an inpatient team and moving up to the wards and allowing them to pursue the alternative diagnosis was appropriate. I think the way I pass that question is very much for me when I think about admitting patients or discharging them, I always try to establish an etiology and a severity, even a likely etiology and a severity. And I wasn't convinced I had done a likely etiology. And certainly I was pursuing a PE. But then the question comes around severity of illness in this context. If the patient did have a PE, they've got an elevated troponin, which means there's some element of right heart strain, if my initial hypothesis is correct, which means we're not dealing with a subsegmental tiny PE here. We're potentially dealing with something a lot larger, which means then that how do I communicate my diagnostic uncertainty to the wards on a weekend. I didn't really think that was necessarily going to happen in a manner that was safe. And so I broke a few rules and I kept the patient in the emergency department overnight pending a VQ scan the next day. It was very popular with the nurses that night. Oh, no, yes. <laughs> did not end well. <laughs> I think, again, part of the reason that maybe I didn't get IMS was because I uh, at least was able to explain to people why I was doing what I was doing. There is no one-sized-fits-all answer to this question it really does depend on your local protocols your hospital the way your hospital functions the inpatient team's acceptance of risk as well and you know what the nature of your service is i think it's worth just reflecting on some of the pros and cons of this approach perhaps some of the downsides to keeping this patient in the ed are that effectively that is taking up capacity that another patient could use isn't it yeah look i'm very big on hidden consequences to your decisions i think As an ED physician, particularly as a senior ED physician, we're not allowed the luxury of caring only about one patient, unfortunately, even if they're the sickest patient in the department. And I think it's important to be aware of how, for example, keeping a patient in a bed overnight might impact the accessibility to acute treatment for your other patients. And certainly that was something that I considered, but in this particular case thought the payoff was potentially worth it. Other examples of this kind of thinking and where it could be applied would be overordering of CT scans would be, I think, probably the classical example. You'll never miss a head injury if you scan all of the heads, but probably delay your diagnosis of an aortic dissection if the poor radiologist is drowning in uh, 50 unnecessary CT brains. And I think we never see that. We'll never see that. Um, so it's important to be aware that it's a possibility. So in the setting then where access to CTPA was limited, this patient had specific factors that made you decide that they were enough at risk to keep them as opposed to holding on to every single patient with a suspected PE in, in the ED? No, of course, yeah. I think for me, if I had to ask the question, there's three disposition categories on the wards. A normal monitored ward bed, I suppose you've got you know telemetry versus not telemetry, but we won't go into that 
normal ward bed, HDU level, ICU level care. I think that's how you would pass it out. The patient was clinically stable, hemodynamically stable, and certainly didn't have any reasons to go to ICU. Would a respiratory close observation unit be better for this patient? Would a ward be better for this patient? Is telemetry required for this patient? I think those questions which are important to answer in an after hours context, I would struggle to answer with the information that I had. And so I couldn't guarantee safe disposition of the patient. And I think in that context, that's how I would justify the decision to keep overnight. That's not necessarily true of all patients in whom I'm questioning the presence of a PE. So just exploring the alternative process, I think there is merit to the argument that you treat this as you do any other troponin elevation. You admit it under cardiology, maybe a CCU or, or a telemetered cardiology bed, so at least having that cardiac monitoring. And on the one hand, you freed up your ED bed. The patient is arguably safe being in a monitored environment with some critical care capability or, or at least some sort of uh, capability for escalation. I guess talking about hidden risks, the other consideration is diagnostic and process momentum, isn't it? We think about the delay of keeping the patient in the ED, but sometimes not apparent to us is the delay of the patient getting admitted under cardiology when it's a respiratory issue and then respiratory only sees the patient 24 hours later, or maybe there's the awareness to make the appropriate consult at the appropriate time. Perhaps the right treatment modalities aren't immediately pursued and maybe a three-day inpatient stay becomes a five-day inpatient stay just to pull numbers out of the air. That's not to say that we need to rationalize all of our decisions based on what the optimal flow of the inpatient setting is. But I guess it is another example of one of the potential considerations in a situation where there is uncertainty around risk. Yeah, I think the question really becomes how well can your system deal with the uncertainty? And look, I work in a brilliant hospital with brilliant clinicians, but Saturday afternoon is not a great time for ward cover. You know, you've got stretched ward staff. We're a big hospital. And so throwing a spanner in the works may not be the best thing from a patient advocacy point of view. And, and I th- I'm firmly a believer if you make your decisions about what's best for the patient, you never really go wrong. And so that's kind of what I did in this particular circumstance. And so you can certainly argue that it didn't go wrong in this case, did it? What was the outcome? No. So the next day, obviously, I very anxiously follow up the VQ scan and the patient ended up having bilateral segmental pulmonary emboli, which were then confirmed on a follow-up CTPA. He did not have a DVT um, and he subsequently went on anticoagulation and, uh, you know, had a reasonably uneventful hospital stay being discharged within sort of 24 to 48 hours after an echo to confirm that there was no significant cardiac dysfunction. There was some degree of right heart strain on the echo? Yes, there was, yeah. And on the CTPA, there was a bit of reflux into the IVC um, of contrast. So he certainly justified an inpatient admission for this PE. His troponin elevation suggested that his PESI score would have been abnormal, his PE severity index score. And so in that particular context, then you're thinking, well, if this patient did have a PE, they need to be admitted anyway um, for at least an echo as an inpatient. Um, So I think that that made me look really cool. (laughs) (laughs) and mic drop there thanks bye (laughs) i think this brings me back to the first thing i said which is the most terrifying thing for me is when you accidentally don't kill people and i think during the course of this patient's stay in the ed there were multiple instances where anchoring bias and diagnostic momentum were dangling very tempting carrots in front of me to run down alternative pathways. I certainly ate the carrot. Well, yeah, I mean, you drank the Kool-Aid. But (laughs) I think it's always important to acknowledge that 
these near misses could very well have almost been misses. And so they, I think, compel us to ask the question, why did we do what we did? And how do we make this from an accident into how do we incorporate this into our regular practice? And so if I think part of this podcast, part of this series, hopefully, is to bring to you know our audience's attention the interesting cases that we come across in our practice and how there's almost always a lesson to be learned doesn't always have to be a cardiac arrest or a major trauma that needed a thoracotomy for us to feel engaged in the progress of a case. Amazing. I think a, a really brilliant way to rationalize that case. I wonder if you can just sum up just a couple of take-home points for yeah. our listeners. Look, I think there's two things that I think I would like to emphasize. The first is I don't think it's stressed enough the importance of predest probability, just in general, but also specifically in PE where nothing is really very good except highly invasive imaging modalities that are very resource intensive. And so I think learning more about how we think about predest probability um, is very important for each individual clinician. And what feeds into that predest probability is our own biases and our own past experiences. And I think acknowledging that and understanding how that affects our diagnostic momentum is very crucial to practicing safe emergency medicine. The next point I think that is really important to understand is having a structured approach to protect yourself from your own mistakes is extremely important. So for me, the approach that I use is a hypothesis and hypothesis testing modality. So I force myself to form a hypothesis about what I think is going on. I then force myself to test the hypothesis. And this occurs at multiple stages of the patient's clinical workup, but particularly at the discharge or disposition end of the spectrum. So when I'm sending someone home or admitting them to the ward, AHD or ICU. And I frame the question around what is the etiology of the patient's symptoms? What is the severity of their illness? Have I tested my understanding of both of them? So a good example would be an undifferentiated Weezer in a 78 year old who has all the end organ pathologies. Is it asthma? Is it COPD? Is it CCF? No one knows because they have all three. So if I think it's more likely to be COPD, then I'll test my hypothesis by treating them with bronchodilator therapy, expecting a response after X treatments. If it doesn't happen, then I go back and revisit my hypothesis and either I need to reevaluate the etiology of the patient's symptoms or I've misjudged the severity of their illness. And I think having a process like that, and I'm not advocating for that to be everyone's process, that's just how my brain works. But I think having a process like that is key to First, explaining to inpatient teams and communicating your concerns effectively, but also policing yourself against your own biases. And I think this case was a good example of that. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much, Prem. So guys, I hope you loved it. It's our first pilot episode of the Network 5 Emergency Medicine case series, which is the first of a number of novel ideas that we're hoping to bring you over the course of this year and next year. Please write in to us with your comments and your feedback, westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. That made me look really cool. <laughs> <laughs> and mic drop there. Yeah.